It's good to see you all. I also want to say uh, congratulations to Francis, um, who was baptized last week, and so it's wonderful. Yay! Let's give a round of applause. Um, and um, Inka, it's nice to see you, and the others as well. I don't want to leave anyone out, but welcome visitors, um, and welcome those of you who are watching uh, from online as well. I want you to imagine with me that you are part of the Greco-Roman society in the first century. So this is 2000. That's okay. Let's try that again. Let me know if it's safe to, <laughs> safe to approach. Okay. Um, so travel back with me in time, 2,000 years, to the first century AD in the Greco-Roman society. Let's pretend that you are fortunate to be born as a free citizen. More than one in three in the Roman Empire were slaves, either as war captives or they made themselves slaves by paying off family debts that way, or they were born to slave parents. But you, you are fortunate enough to be born a free citizen. You also have the double fortune of being born a free male citizen. And you managed to escape poverty, which impacted another one-third of the Roman Empire. So you are the privileged few who get to get married, have children, live in a house that eventually becomes uh, the place that shelters you, your, your wife, your unmarried daughters, your sons, their wives, their children, your slaves, their families, your workers, and their families, all within your household. And you are the father of this household, the pater familias is what it's called in Latin. The most important thing for you and the entire household is the honor of the household. And anything that brings dishonor to that household is under discipline by the paterfamilias. For example, if you have a baby that has any abnormalities or is illegitimate or a girl, it was accepted and common practice to leave that child outside to die. If anyone in your family did something that brought shame on the family, you as the paterfamilias could legally disown that person, sell him or her into slavery, or even condemn the person to death. Your daughter would receive little or no education and would be married before or at puberty. And she would go to live with her husband's household to fulfill her household duties, and you probably would not see them again. Un unless she was very wealthy or was widowed, and you might see her have a bit more independence. Under Athenian law, your mother, your wife, and your daughter are classified as your dependent, regardless of her age, your legal property, so that her son, husband, or father is the one who gets to decide what happens to her. She is inferior to you in mind, body, and soul, and it is her duty to obey you. And if your wife displeased you for any reason, you could divorce her by simply kicking her out. Your philosophy is that of Aristotle, who, a few hundred years before, had written, of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of master over slaves, another of a father, and the third of a husband. The male is by nature fitter for command than the female. The inequality is permanent. The courage of a man is shown in commanding of a woman in obeying. So slaves in your care, the children in your care, the women in your care, you as the pater familias had supreme and absolute authority over them all. 
Now imagine you, the paterfamilias, hearing this. Someone comes along and says, Husbands, love your wives and treat them as your own body. Fathers, do not make your children bitter or they will become discouraged. Treat them kindly. Masters, treat your slaves with respect for there is no discrimination with God. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What progressive, crazy, countercultural idea was this? A worldview of equality and unity. Who was saying this? And if you were that paterfamilias in that family, you would stop this person to say, where are you getting this crazy thing from? And the person would say, I got this from a man named Paul, who is a follower of Jesus. Now you see, when we think of Paul today, we think and associate him with patriarchy. We think, ugh, and I have been guilty of this too. And I'm like, Paul, why did you say this? Right? Why did you say this and write this that made life difficult for so many people, but that's because we're reading Paul with our own bias. But when you look at Paul in his context, in his time, Paul was doing what Jesus did, affirming women for their giftedness, equality, and calling in God, affirming children as having voices, as having dignity and worth and value, affirming slaves as, as having intrinsic image of God. For example, Let's look at a passage that has been used um, out of context and therefore um, over the centuries has created gender differences and roles that have kept people um, in roles in limited places that have created a lot of conflict as well as um, abuse. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21. So this is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus and he writes, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to yourselves to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to, be present, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of this body, of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Okay, we're going to be spending a few minutes on this passage. Notice that the thesis statement for this entire argument is that phrase, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the thesis statement. And I want you to remember this because sometimes we lose the, the, the forest 
because of the trees, right? We, we get focused on, you know, this person and that person and this and roll that. And we forget that the thesis statement of Paul is submit to one another. Mutual submission. And the Greek word that is used for submit here is never used in the sense of somebody subjecting you. It is always used in the sense of someone voluntarily choosing to consider someone else first. Choosing to subject themselves. Choosing to surrender out of consideration. And Paul says, submit, you choose because of your reverence for Christ. Now, we read this with our modern lens, and so we don't realize the shock value of what Paul's words would have meant for this first century audience. It was, in the words of Beth Ellison Barr, the author of Making of Biblical Womanhood, um, who's a professor of history and religion and wrote a book that, um, that has been pivotal in my understanding and in the sermon today. And the book, if I can just get, thank you, um, she calls this the resistance narrative to Roman patriarchy. Do you hear that? She's calling Pauline texts resistance narratives to Roman patriarchy because she's able to go back. She's a medieval uh, uh, scholar. She's able to go back in church history. She's able to go back to the beginning, look at the text and say, hey, when Paul shared it, it was revolutionary. It was resistance narrative. It was calling women to, to uh, bringing them up bringing children up, bringing slaves up. And calling all Christians to be different from their cultural context. Different how? All right, so let's go back and look at this passage a bit further. When we read it today, the part that kind of jumps and makes us uncomfortable is the idea of the submission of the wife. But if you're the paterfamilias and you are part of that uh, time period 2,000 years ago, the part the submission of the women, that, that, that would not have caught their surprise at all. But what would have challenged them immensely was the call of the husband to submit to the wife. And now I want you to notice something. I put in the color, in purple, where there's mutual submission talked about. Yellow is the women being called to submit, and the green is the husband being called to submit. Notice, if you just look at the colors, how Paul has a lot more to say to the husband about how he was to submit. Because, and that makes sense, because in the first century, right, this was a new concept for them. This was the challenging thing. This is what Paul was trying to uh, help them understand. The first century audience would have been confronted by this call for mutual submission. It was also amazing, we don't understand this today, but in Paul's time, men addressed men, whether in the public forum, whether in the right written discussion, men wrote men, men discussed uh, with men, men talked about things. But here, Paul is addressing women. And in other passages, he addresses children. He addresses the slaves. He brings everybody together in conversation. He is addressing everybody. Usually people addressed the ones in charge first. But here, Paul says, nope, I'm going to talk about mutual submission, and I'm going to address the wives first. Scott McKnight, a New Testament scholar, writes, instead of grounding the instructions for the wife in her husband's authority, power, and leadership, or status in a hierarchy, the grounding is radically otherwise. It is grounded in the Lord's way of life. And last week, I talked about the Old Testament. I talked about Genesis. I talked about how God created men and women in his image. 
and how that established equality and partnership is what we are seeing echoed here. Paul does not underscore the inferiority of women, which was the common chorus of that time. And instead, he emphasizes emphasizes the need of men and women to submit to each other and to submit to Christ, which is ultimately Jesus' example of surrender and sacrifice for us. This time, I've put that passage back in black, but red is all the references to Jesus. You see, this passage, yes, is talking about human relationships with each other, but the whole reason, the whole motivation, the, the whole methodology of how we submit to each other is all because we are following the example of Christ. It is ultimately about Jesus, submitting to Jesus and his example of surrender and submission and sacrifice. Jesus is the one that the wife and the husband submit to, and Jesus is the reason why they submit to each other. And I also want you to point out that when Paul tells uh, the husbands to love their wives, this was also a novel concept in a culture where they didn't get to choose their partners. They were the, the families arranged these marriages. It was to bring about honor. And the husbands did not have to treat their wives kindly at all, let alone love them. And Paul could have used the word eros, which is talking about that romantic love, or philos, which is that affectionate love, that you like friendship and intimacy. But instead, Paul says, husbands, I want you to agape your wives. The agape love that Jesus uses to talk about the kind of love God has for us, the kind that gives up his life for his enemies. And Paul also says, quotes that that Genesis that we looked at last time, where he says, hey, I know in this Greco-Roman society, the wife leaves her family to join into yours, but back in Genesis, he says, remember, the man leaves his family to join the wife to become one flesh. So Paul kind of quotes that and reminds his hearers of God's original design. There was another bit of shocking thing that for us is not shocking at all, but in the Greco-Roman world, female bodies were considered inferior. So once again, quoting Aristotle, female as it were a deformed male because females are weaker and colder in their nature, we should look upon the female state as being as it were deformity. This is the Greco-Roman idea of the, of the female body as, as one of negativity. And here's the thing. Seven times in his letters, Paul uses maternal imagery of a woman's body to describe his relationship with these churches that he has planted. For example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Galatians 4.19, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. You see, men hearing this in the first century would have been scandalized to hear a male apostle, a leader in the church, compare himself to a woman. And women in the first century would have been moved to hear, finally, someone making illusions that they could relate to. Okay, 
So maybe we're starting to think, okay, maybe Paul wasn't misogynistic after all. Maybe Paul isn't the one to blame. Maybe something else has happened in history that has made us misunderstand so much of what he said and so much of his impact on Christianity in the first century. But, but, he said so many other things. First Corinthians chapter 14. Women should be silent, remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. All the amount of times this passage has been misquoted in history, how Paul would weep. Roy often quotes his professor Andrews who said, text without context is pretext for making the Bible say what you want it to say. Right? A text without context is pretext. People who quote 1 Corinthians 14 as well as other passages by Paul to say that women cannot preach or teach claim a plain reading of scripture. They said, well, this is thus saith the Lord. And I'm going to come back to this idea later. But their literal reading of this text is not as consistent as they think. For example, if they really are saying, thus saith the Lord, women should be silent, well then, women should not speak at all in church. No greeting, no praying, no singing, no whispering to their children to be quiet, right? Silence. But I don't know a single church that actually takes this completely literally. They say, oh, no, no, no. Women can teach children's ministry. They can pray. They can sing. They can even make announcements. They just can't preach. Well, where did that come from? Seems a bit arbitrary. Let's look at the context of 1 Corinthians. Paul wrote this letter around AD 55 to the Christians living in the city of Corinth. Red arrow there. You see that it is a city right in that bridge in Greece between um, Corinth and Athens. And so because it's a major harbor city, there was, um, there were, it was a melting pot of various people from all backgrounds who would come. And we find out from Acts chapter 18 that describes Paul's journey, missionary journeys, that he went to Corinth where he met a couple named Aquila and Priscilla. And he meets this couple and he shares Jesus with them and he spends time with them as well as other people. And eventually people become Christians and they establish a house church. Now, after a while, Paul decides, well, I must go on to other places and, and tell others about Jesus. But he takes Priscilla and Aquila with him. And when he takes them to Ephesus, they meet a man named Apollos who is passionate about God, but he hasn't yet learned about Jesus. So he's, he's teaching and he's talking about you know, his, his, um, what he knows. And Acts chapter 18, verse 26 says, He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, this is Apollos, they took him and, ex and expounded to him the way of God more accurately. Now, once again, us reading that, we're like, yep, cool. First century A.D., Here's a man and a woman who is having theological debate. Women did not have theological debates. Women did not give Bible studies. But here it is very clear by the writer of Acts, Dr. Luke, that Priscilla and Aquila heard Apollos. They sat with him. 
They explained to him, and they taught him. Paul personally trains this husband and wife duo, and at the end of his letter to the Corinthians, he says, Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, so does the church that meets at their house. So we find out that, that Priscilla and Aquila, they're at Ephesus, they've planted a new church in their home. And Paul is training them, and he's letting the Corinthians know, hey, they say hello, because they came from, you know, Corinth. Now, if Paul wanted all women to be silent in all churches, why would he mention Priscilla and Aquila sending their greetings from their house church? Clearly, by this and other examples, Paul approved and even encouraged Priscilla to preach, to teach, to lead their house church alongside her husband. So what did Paul mean when he said that women should be silent in church to, in his letter to the Corinthians? Well, it turns out that sometime after Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla left Corinth, and they're in Ephesus. They didn't have social media. They didn't have phone calls. They get letters. They get visits. And the visits and the letters are telling them there's problems in this new church that they had left behind, which is understandable because they're all new believers. And new believers can't let go of old ways of living and thinking, right? They're learning. They're, they're, they're on this journey. And Paul hears about the problems, and he writes them this letter that we know as First Corinthians. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Paulus. Another, I follow Cephas. And another, I follow Christ. Okay, so we find out that Chloe's household have snitched to Paul, that there's problems happening where there are divisions. So you're kind of sensing that there's divisions there. There's obviously problems in, in uh, Chloe's household that have also come by themselves to, to, to report a problem. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to go through all the problems, but you can see there were lots of problems in the church of Corinth, including things like a man sleeping with his father's wife and the church having no problems with it, lawsuits between believers, gluttony at the Lord's Supper, inequality of socioeconomic differences, being, um, you know, the ones mistreating those who had, who were poorer, there were lots of issues with this church. There were lots of problems happening. They're very specific issues. Could it be that 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where Paul asks the women to be silent, could it be specific advice for a specific problem? Imagine if Bronwyn sitting here so, so quietly turned around to Lily and they started arguing about what I'm saying right now. And then Lauren joins in, Lorraine joins in, and these four women in the front, they start arguing amongst themselves and start then asking Brian and Eric what they think as well while I'm preaching. That's kind of what was happening in the Corinthian church. As these women who had never been allowed to be part of the discourse before, for the first time, are allowed in. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever been in a social setting where you were new and you didn't know what to do. Did you ever make a faux pas? 
Did you ever sit at a fine dining situation where you were like, I don't know what to do with that fork? Or have you ever been in us? You know, I went to the Australian、um, Open for the first time this year. I know I've been here for ten years. First time we went, and we were so excited, and we we went into the match, and it was like absolute silence, right? And like other sports games I've been to, like you cheer and you like you know you clap, and absolute silence. And like we had food with us, we're like, can we eat while we're watching? Are we allowed? Like. There are social etiquettes that are not、uh, always clear until you step in, and then you realize, oh, like there are there are unwritten rules here. Well, imagine this church of new believers coming together, mix of slave and free, men and women, children and 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 older people, people of all social economic backgrounds coming together, and they're not used to being in the same place. They're not used to having conversations of theology together, so they are. Then they don't. They don't know how to, you know, do this. So there's side conversations. There's side arguments. There's people praying at the same time. There's people prophesying at the same time. There's complete disorder. And if I were to say to the to you know this very naughty people here, can, can you please be quiet? Am I asking them to be silent for all time everywhere? Or, or am I asking them to be quiet? And once they're quiet, all good, right? No teacher. There's some teachers here telling a group of students who are the, the noisy, talky ones, chatty ones, to be quiet. Are expecting those children to then not participate when it is time to participate. First Corinthians chapter 14 was a response to certain women in the church who were disrupting the service with their interruptions, and this is how the early Church understood it, and this is why, throughout the first century churches, there were women speaking, and throughout the centuries, there were women speaking, and in the early 1800s, there were women speaking. The Seventh Day Adventist Church was founded by young men and women who loved to study Scripture to discover what they called present truth. The idea that certain biblical truths. Become relevant to God at God's people at specific times in history, and that God through the Holy Spirit helps us to better understand how to interpret and apply it for our time. Pastor Randy Roberts puts it this way: As the world changes and as time changes, God will send the Holy Spirit to us to help us understand how we live out the principles of the Bible. In that way, Scripture is both timeless and timely. It is timeless because the Bible is full of truths that apply to us regardless of time, place, and culture. But it is timely in that it can speak directly to the circumstances of a specific time, place, and culture. This doesn't mean the truths of the Bible that made an impact in a certain context doesn't apply to us today. Rather, they might apply to us in different ways. You see, as a result of this value of present truth, Adventist pioneers they loved Bible study, but they also loved coming together to have robust conversations. Hours of I see this, I see this, I see this. Okay, well, what you know, studying, looking at history, looking at this. They loved to be able to talk and pray and ask for present truth, and that's why they valued the gift of prophecy because they believed and understood that God has new things to share. Ellen White was a young woman. Can I have screen priority, Andrew? Ellen White was a young woman who received visions from God, and she shared them courageously with others by preaching, by writing, by traveling widely. 
despite the criticism she received. Did you know her own brother? Her own brother begged her not to go out to public. He said, I beg of you, do not disgrace the family. I will do anything for you if you will not go out as a preacher. And she wrote back and said, Can it disgrace the family for me to preach Christ and him crucified? If you would give me all the gold your house could hold, I would not cease giving my testimony to God. She's one of my heroes. She is also the most translated female nonfiction author in the history of literature. And her ministry was pivotal in the formation of the Adventist movement where men and women from various denominations gathered together and said, we all have these bias. We all have these different backgrounds. But let's look at the text. Let's look at the context. Let's figure out what God's truth for us is in the 19th century. She married a man, Ellen White, uh, married a man named James, who became an editor of the flagship Adventist publication called the Review and Herald. And when I was at the seminary, I had the privilege slash um, I'll just call it a privilege, of going down to the research center and digging my way through the Marco film um, cache to look for certain articles. Because you see, I grew up, I shared a little bit of this last week, I grew up with, with, the, with the view that I could be anything, a surgeon, a pilot, an engineer, but not a pastor. And I thought that was the right thing. And I grew up believing that Women should submit to men. And I grew up believing that, that there were certain things within society I could do, no worries, but in the home and in church, I cannot do. And I believed this until I, God nudged me very unexpectedly into ministry at the church in New York City and then pushed me into being sponsored, <coughs> excuse me, to do my Master of Divinity at Andrew Seminary. And I was going through the studies and I was enjoying it, but I was so bothered by this concept because it was something that, that my whole life I was taught was wrong. And so while I was studying, I looked for every possible escape button. <laughs> and I looked for, for one reason, one rational thing that would let me say, ah, see, I can't be a pastor after all. And in one of my classes, we had to choose a research topic, and I said, all right, I need to, I need to confront this. i got to stop running away, right? I'm going to get swallowed by a fish otherwise, so I'm going to have to come, come face to face. I'm going to go down there, and I'm going to choose this as my research topic. What did the early Adventist pioneers think about women preachers, women pastors, women in ministry? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find out. So I went down to the microfilm in the dungeons of the library, and I had that little, you know, the tiny little slides, hours and hours and hours. And you know what? I looked for one thing that would let me off the hook. And instead, I found so much evidence, not only of God using women to do, to spread the Advent message in the 19th century, but of men who supported and affirmed and empowered women to do so. For example, poor James White. He was tired of defending his wife's right to preach. 
you can really tell when you read his articles because he was the editor of Review and Herald. And there are times when he's like, come on again? All right. And he publishes over and over and over again responses to people saying, why is a woman allowed to preach? Why is a woman allowed to teach? And in 1861, he published this letter to the editor that was originally published in Ireland. And he wrote... We consider the following a triumphant vindication of the right of the sisters to take part in the public worship of God. The writer applies the prophecy of Joel, your daughters shall prophesy, and to feel preaching. But while it must embrace public speaking of some kind, this we think is but half of its meaning. And then he prints two pages of the entire letter to the editor, and it's great. And I wish I had time to quote it, but I can't. There's John Nevin Andrews for whom Andrews Theological Seminary is named, who wrote in the 1879 publication of the Review and Herald an article entitled, May Women Speak in Meetings. And addressing that first Corinthians passage, he says, the Corinthians church was in a state of great disorder. Now it appears from the 14th chapter that when they were assembled in meeting, the women threw everything into confusion by talking among themselves, acting with such indecorum as to be a matter of shame to them. So that what the apostle says to the women in such a church as this, and in such a state of things, is not to be taken as directions to all Christian women in other churches and in other times, when and where such disorders do not exist. As positive proof that he was not speaking against a woman's participation in religious worship, we refer to, and he lists some passages, these two passages show that they, women, did speak to edification, exhortation, and comfort. It was not a shame for women to do this work. And one of my favorites, an 1892 article called Women's Relation to the Cause of Christ, which in 2009, when I was deep in my elbows in these files, didn't realize. But this week, when I went back and looked at it, this was printed in Melbourne, Australia. And it was amazing to me reading it here in Melbourne, Australia, when this publication was sent to Michigan, which is where I was deep in my elbows. Um, with this, that has now come full circle. And in the publication, the article is introduced in this way, and just listen to how tired they are of talking about this. Our esteemed editorial contributor, Elder J.C. Tenney, now editor of the Bible Echo in Melbourne, Australia, has, it seems, the usual editorial experience of being frequently called upon to explain 1 Corinthians 14.34 with reference to the question of whether women should take any public part in the worship of God. In his paper of March 15, 1892, how many years now? Anyways, he gives under the foregoing heading the following excellent thoughts upon this subject, which we are happy to transfer to our columns as a further reply to those to whom we are so often called upon to respond on this question. Like you can just tell, they're like, come on, folks. And I'm just like, it's 2023. And come on, folks, we're still, I'm still, it's still happening. So what was it that Elder Tenney said? What did he say in Melbourne? And it is so brilliant. But once again, I don't have time, so let me just share a little bit. He says, The difficulty with these texts is almost entirely chargeable to immature conclusions reached in regard to them. It is manifestly illogical and unfair to give to any passage of Scripture an unqualified radical meaning that is at variance with the main tenor of the Bible and directly in conflict with his plain teachings. The Bible may be reconciled in all its parts without going outside the lines of consistent interpretation. 
but great difficulties likely to be experienced by those who interpret isolated passages in independent light according to the ideas they happen to entertain upon them. Those who are brought up to believe it to be a shame for women to speak in meeting look no further than these texts and give them a sweeping application. Critics of the Bible, critics of womankind, as well as women who are looking for an excuse for idleness, seize these passages in the same manner. By their misuse of these texts, many conscientious people are led into a misconception of what Paul meant to teach. Considering the question from a broader standing, it will be seen at a glance that while it has ever been the work of the powers of darkness to degrade women, the work of the Bible has been to elevate her. Amen. It was the work of the gospel to remove distinctions among men in race, nationality, sex, or condition. Paul declares that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This text has a generic application. It is of universal force wherever the gospel reaches. In the light of such a statement, how can women be excluded from the privilege of the gospel? A fundamental principle of the gospel is that God is no respecter of persons, a principle which applies to men and women. Sorry, but obviously this is very personal for me as well. You can sense the frustration, the passion, the commitment of Elder Tenney to vindicate not just women, but all people, all people who had been excluded from God's work. By the way, I want to point out something to you. Notice how he quotes Acts chapter 10, verse 34, that God is no respecter of person. What does that mean? You see, if someone, I want to, I, I promise to come back to the idea of plain reading of scripture. So I'm doing that now. Plain reading of scripture today, someone might read that and say, God is no respecter of persons. God does not respect people. Okay, plain reading of scripture. But that is not what it means. The phrase no respecter is old English, and so the, the, the right way to translate that today is that God doesn't show partiality to one group of people over another. You see, translations matter. Did you know that when people say, well, I'm just being faithful to scripture, I'm just doing a plain reading of the Bible, I want you to ask them, which Bible? Did you know that the original Bible was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic? So is that what they're quoting? Or are they quoting an English translation? Did you know that the original Hebrew manuscripts are written, was written without vowels and without punctuation? The entire Old Testament, no vowels, no punctuation. Did you know that the earliest Greek New Testament manuscripts were written in all capital letters without spaces between words? Slew of alphabet, like just... That's how it was. All capitals, no spaces between words. Can someone do me a favor and get me a tissue? I'm like really snotty. Sorry. <laughs> um, I don't mind, but I feel like you might mind looking at me. Um, so imagine, okay? No punctuation. Thank you, Shandon. Okay. So, yeah, good, good idea, just in case. Um, so... Old Testament, New Testament, no punctuation, no vowels in the Old Testament, no uh, spaces in the New Testament. Did you know that every Old Testament, New Testament manuscript written before the 14th century was copied by hand? And that there are thousands of manuscripts that archaeologists have discovered. And guess what? There are slight variations. It's amazing 
that most of it is exactly the same. Amazing. That thousands of people copying over thousands of years got it right. But there are a few differences. So the question becomes, which translate, the translator who's going to translate into English, which manuscript are, you gonna, are they going to use out of the 5,800 to 28,000 possibilities? Did you know that the Bible verses, chapter headings, paragraphs were all added during medieval times? For example, by Archbishop Stephen Langston in the 13th century. Okay, So the Bible, the original Bible, no punctuation, no chapter headings, no Bible verses, no spaces between words. No, you know, they're, they're, that's the original Bible. Furthermore, new discoveries of ancient texts like the Dead Sea Scrolls have brought to light understanding of certain Hebrew and Greek words because ancient Hebrew and ancient Greek doesn't exist anymore, right? Languages have evolved. So when there are certain words in the Bible, we're like, what does this mean? Well, we don't know. Because it's only used a few times, for example. And so with that context, how do you know what the word means? If I make up a word today, like, okay, I can't. <laughs> but like, if I were to make up a word, how do you know what it means? Unless I use it a few more times to give you context. That's why there are so many different translations of the Bible. And that's why it's important to read different translations of the Bible. And that's why it's important to know which translation comes from what. And I spent hours putting this together. <laughs> These are just some of the major translations of the Bible. So there's many, many more. But before you turn to the table, let me just explain. So Old Testament, written in Hebrew, thousands of years, you know, comes to the, the uh, transmitted through the, the faithful, faithful, faithful Jewish men in, uh, in history. You get to the first century, New Testament letters and, and books are being written, but, you know, it's not like they had the printing press. So written, copied, shared, copied, shared. And then 383 A.D., a guy named Jerome is like, you know what? All these manuscripts, let's put them all together in a thing called the Bible. So then he puts the Old Testament Hebrew, translates it into Latin, which is the, the language of the day, the Roman Empire. He takes the New Testament uh, manuscripts written in Greek by Peter, Paul, James, you know, gathers them together. So he's choosing which ones to gather together. And then he translates them into Latin, puts it together. Ta-da, the Bible is born. And then for a thousand years, that is the Bible. Over a thousand years, this Latin Vulgate is what it's called, is the Bible, the word of God. That's all they had. I mean, they had original manuscripts as well, but for most people, this is all they had. Now we come to English, okay, because that's what we speak here. So let's look at the English translation. How do we get the English translations? Thousand years, just Latin. Then finally, in the 14th century, a man named John Wycliffe translates the Bible from the Latin Vulgate into English. And that was amazing, especially because this was even before the Protestant Reformation. That's why he's called the Morning Star of the Reformation. He was even before Martin Luther. Of course, when the Protestant Reformation begins, Martin Luther translates the Bible into German. John Calvin translates it into French. And more and more, you see now the, the, the Bible becoming accessible to the people. Uh, William Tyndale comes along and translates the Bible for the first time from the original Hebrew and Greek instead of the Latin. The original, he goes to the original and then translates it into English. But it's not complete. He doesn't do the whole Bible. Can you imagine how long it would take? He does, he does parts. And then in 1539, 
By this point, England has broken away from the Catholic Church and has become their own church called the Anglican Church. Um, and the head of the Anglican Church is the king. And the king says, I want my own Bible, not the Catholic Church's Bible. So then he authorizes the Bible that is the Kramer Bible, which um, is partly from the Latin Vulgate, partly from the original Greek, partly from German translations. They kind of took a bit of a potpourri. So then they realized, oh, we should go back to the original languages. So in 1560, the Geneva Bible was a, a, a bunch of scholars that were actually kicked out of England. So the Anglican Church kicked out the Puritans and anyone who disagreed with them. And the people who got kicked out went to Geneva, and they translated the Bible into English in Geneva. And this is the version that Shakespeare quotes, just FYI. Um, and this is the version that the Protestants took on the Mayflower to the U.S. because they were the Puritans kicked out by the Anglican Church. Now the Anglican Church realizes, all right, we also need a Bible that is from the original Greek and not a potpourri of Latin and German. So then they create the King James Version. And this becomes the authoritative Bible, English Bible, for over 400 years. And sponsored by the King James VI. Now, there are other Bibles, but I, I, I want to point out how significant the King James Version was. And it was a good one 400 years ago. But here's the thing. English has evolved. If you've ever read Shakespeare, you know that English has, has evolved. And here's the other thing. Oh, I forgot to mention that in green, I, I have some kind of key events that are important. 1947 to 1956, the Dead Sea Scrolls are discovered. Bunch of kids playing with rocks, throwing them, okay, as kids do, into a cave. And then they hear something break. They're like, what's that? Let's go explore. And they go in and they find jars and jars and jars of old, ancient, from the, from the you know, um, first century and even before that. And, and the archaeologists then go in and they examine and there's actually hundreds of them. And there's like room after room after room. They haven't even finished, actually. There's still rooms that they haven't been able to discover. But there's these rooms filled with jars. In the jars are scrolls of the Hebrew Bible. And this was a huge discovery because they were now able to examine the Hebrew Bible they had copies of now with these ones from, you know, 2,000 years before, and they were amazed at how much of it was the same. But there were other books in addition to the Bible that were in these uh, jars. And those books have words that were used in the Hebrew Bible that uh, give us context clues about what those words would actually mean in the Hebrew Bible. Right? It's like having a whole bunch of dictionaries and having you know other literature that you can compare with. And so this scholarship now helped with some translations of the Bible. And so then it makes sense that there would be a new translation of the Bible to respond to this new discovery, which was the Revised Standard Version. Now something happens in the 1970s. In the 1970s, a group of Christians in America, they believe that, oh no, why are we studying other literature to compare with the Bible, why are, why are we you know letting letting study of, of 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 history impact the Bible? And this group of people became very nervous about this, and they said, "Let's make a translation of the Bible that is literal, because we believe that the Bible was dictated by God 
word for word, and therefore has no errors. By the way, I don't prescribe to this belief, and we'll talk about this another time. But this group of people, and we call them fundamentalists because they believe in this inerrancy of the Bible, we call it, this idea that the word of God is like literally like word for word dictated by God instead of um, expressions of God's message through human ways. And so this group come up with this idea of complementarian theology. This is the idea that of gender roles. This is These are the ones who are saying, thus saith Lord, women should be silent in the church. And so in 1970s, in America, this uh, theology and this, uh, this movement happens, and they published the New American Standard Bible, a literal translation of the Bible. But as I shared, literal doesn't always mean that it is most accurate because the original intent of the first century authors becomes lost. And unfortunately, as these fundamental preachers in the 1970s and 1980s taught Theology based on the literal reading of the Bible, we saw then this creeping into other denominations, including the Adventist church, which we are still struggling with today. New translations of the Bible, oopsie, go back, um, came out as a result, sometimes in reaction to the other translations. <coughs> the NIV came out. The New King James Version came out. And then the fundamentalist said, oh, no, no, we need to keep, up, we need to in- update the English but maintain the, the message. And so they created the English Standard Version. And uh, there's another one, the Common English Bible, which I think is a good one to always read in addition to your favorite versions, um, which was translated by 120 scholars from 24 denominations, and it is the most gender-inclusive in the sense that out of the 120 scholars, 20 were women, um, women theologians. So when someone says, I subscribe to the plain reading of the Bible, ask them, which Bible? Because you look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 to 15 in the English Standard Version, it says, let a woman learn, learn quietly with all submissiveness, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she'll be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. And you're like, what? Right? (laughs) I see you. I feel that. But then, so remember, English Standard Version, fundamentalist view of scripture. Here's the common English version. A wife should learn quietly with complete submission. I don't allow a wife to teach or control her husband. Instead, she should be a quiet listener. Adam was formed first and then Eve. Adam wasn't deceived, but rather his wife became the one who stepped over the line because she was completely deceived. But a wife will be brought safely through childbirth if they both continue in faith, love, and holiness together with self-control. I just want to make a quick mention. I know I'm running out of time. But the phrase... Thank you. But the phrase brought safely through childbirth is very different from you'll be saved, you'll be saved through giving birth. Okay? That's a very different thing. One thing is saying by having children you will achieve salvation. This one is saying, hey, women, in the first century, women died while giving childbirth. It was a real fear that every woman lived with. And so he's saying, hey, I know you're scared, women, but you will be brought safely through childbirth. Like that, that's a very different thing. Here's the message translation by Eugene, Eugene Peterson in the 1990s. 
I don't let women take over and tell men what to do. They should study to be quiet and obedient along with everyone else. Adam was made first, then Eve. Woman was deceived first, our pioneer in sin, with Adam right on her heels. On the other hand, her childbearing brought about salvation, reversing Eve. And the implication is because of, of Mary and Jesus. But this salvation only comes to those who continue in faith, love, and holiness, gathering it all into maturity. You can depend on this. Three completely different ways of looking at the text. I don't have time. Sorry. This sermon used to be 25 pages long, and I've cut it down, but obviously not enough. Um, very trans, um, I don't have time to go into this passage and what it actually means. So go to this podcast, amazing podcast, um, which breaks down this passage and other passages by Paul. Let me just try to end here by, by asking the question, how do we know what Paul really meant in these controversial Bible passages? Remember last week I said, when there are various possibilities of, of, of uh, interpretation of a text, well, we looked at the historical context, you look at the literary context, you look at the overall message of the Bible, you look at how does this lived out look like? When someone prescribes the one explanation, how does, what does that do and what does that look like? And for me, the clarity comes when we look not just at the select Bible texts of Paul, but also look at what Paul did. So, I don't have time, but let me just point out really quickly that in Romans chapter 16, Paul is writing to the church in, Roman, in Rome, and he's sending his greetings. And I want you to notice in, in yellow, orange, yellow, orange, um, throughout the, the chapter, how many women he mentions by name. Phoebe, a deacon, Priscilla, his co-worker, Mary, Junia. He says that she and others are outstanding among the apostles. Tryphena, Tryphosa. Uh, Persis, Julia, mothers and sisters, 10 women are named by name and, and mentioned and referenced in Romans chapter 16 to talk about their labor in ministry. And so when you look at Paul's life, when you look at his other teachings, and you look at the forest and not just the trees, it helps you understand how to interpret those more difficult passages. And ultimately, Paul empowered men and women to live out their spiritual gifts for the edification of the body of Christ. Because that's what it's about. That's what it's about. For Paul, it's, hey, children, hey, men, hey, women, hey, young and old, hey, slave and master, let's all come together to reflect Jesus to the world. You have the gift of preaching? Great. You have the gift of hospitality? Fantastic. You can heal. You can sing. You, let's all work together to share Jesus with the world. My last verse I'm leaving with you. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And you know what? As I was reflecting this week and I went back to this passage, what caught my eye was that line, all authority has been given to me. Jesus never takes authority. He never takes control. He never forces us. But as we 
yield authority to him the authority that we want for ourselves and our own lives the authority that we want as we struggle with each other in relationships the authority that we want when it comes to who's right and i'm wrong and or i'm right and you're wrong right all that struggle for authority if we give it to jesus and we give it all willingly then and only then can we actually then go and make disciples when we are willing to surrender individually, collectively, and we give ourselves to him, that's when the miracle and the beauty of mutual submission happens. Because as we give ourselves to him, he gives himself to us. He says, I'm with you always. You surrender to me, I will, I will give myself to you. And this is my prayer, that as we wrestle with the texts as we seek god with all of our hearts as we surrender our, our 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 biases and our presuppositions and our own kind of you know thoughts but we come to him and say god your will be done god you show me who you are god you teach me you are the lord of my life that as we do that and we come together at the foot of the cross that as men and women we represent his image to the world and he gets glorified and we get to experience his fullness. I want to suggest to you three things to read. I've got like 30 references, but these are the, my recommendations. In addition to the podcast, I mentioned the book Making of uh, Biblical Womanhood by Beth Barr, which is a fantastic book in history as well as some passages. There's an article called The Rise and Fall of Adventist Women in Leadership, with this, which is fascinating, that looks at the history of 150 years of how many um, how many women were in leadership and how that declined over time as, as things happened. And then there's a blog by Margaret uh, Masco, who is an Australian woman who breaks down individual passages as well. Thank you for bearing with me through this long sermon. <laughs> um, and thank you for um, being open to new truth and to being open to looking at old passages but um, trying to be faithful to its original context. I want to invite the children who have been very patient to come up and sing our closing song. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Father God, we thank you that you have made all things, that you have made all people. Help us to appreciate and encourage one another to see your image in each person. I want to thank you personally for my husband, Roy, who has affirmed and empowered my call to ministry. And for all the men and women that you have called, and for all the men and women who have persevered. And I want to pray that you would be with all of us now, as a church, as individuals, as followers of God, to be able to have humility and courage and honesty to face injustices in our own homes, in our own societies, in our own churches, and to be able to speak truth, to be able to speak hope, and I pray, Father God, that as we um, continue to interact with each other in our discussion as well as with others throughout the week and in the, in the weeks to come, that we can respect differences of opinion, that we can love one another, and that ultimately, Father, we can reflect your glory to others so they can see how amazing you truly are. We pray in your son's name. Amen.